Center Church, happy to be with you again for another week as we continue in our series and, in fact, are um, beginning to wrap up our series on the parables of Jesus. And depending on when you listen to these episodes, how you've organized them, where you are in your center communities, um, it may be that some of you have now had the Christmas holiday um, and are and have had several weeks away before hearing this message. Others of you um, only a week ago. Possibly you were listening to part one of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Today, um, we're going to be looking at part two of these partner parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And these these parables, these partner parables, provide a foundation um, or lay the groundwork for um, the parable of the prodigal son, which we will look at next time. Uh, These partner parables of the lost sheep and lost coin um, at once serve to illuminate one another. They help to make sense of one another and they function together in that way. But without these two parables, I think the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son, um, and and there's many complexities to that parable, really the, the nuances and insights that can be gained there I think would be um, inaccessible to us if if we did not have these partner parables to lay the groundwork. So um, to remind you, whether it was last week or many weeks ago, to remind you of um, the first part of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, this is what we touched on uh, last time. We talked about divine determination as a form of divine love. And in our first pass, over the parable of the lost sheep and coin, we talked about the ways in which God's divine determination is enacted through his believing community, through the believing body, through the church. And we um, talked about the importance of noticing what is missing and noticing who is missing. Well, that was the content that we dealt with last time. And today we're going to focus particularly on the parable of the lost sheep as it is presented in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. So there's an important contrast between the framing of the parable of the lost sheep in Luke, where we were before the break, and the framing of the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew, uh, which is which is our focus now. The language that's used in Luke uh, is, is unambiguous. Uh, and again, this was we, we've discussed this, but the sheep is entirely lost in Luke. The 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 the, the language is is very clear, and um, we do have some members of our community who have a, a background in classical or uh, Kone Greek, and you know that, um, the, and you might look at this and see that the language that is presented in Luke is one of a sheep that is is entirely lost and is identified as one that is outside the fold. This parable and the way it's contextualized in Luke doesn't point to someone who um, was within the community and then had fallen away and is now in need of restoration. Rather, as it's framed in Luke, 
This has much more to do with God's initiative through his people in seeking out the one who is missing or in seeking out, um, I, I think, all who are missing. There seems to be, um, I think that it's reasonable to, re- to read that into the parable, that God is divinely seeking all who are lost. And the parable is used in a different but complementary way in Matthew. And that's the focus of the teaching today, which is, is, is part two in our second pass over the parable. Matthew places, unlike Luke, Matthew places tremendous burden on the spiritually healthy in his framing of the parable. So first, Matthew addresses these little ones, and he situates the parable as one that is saying something about those who are already within the believing community. And in what is the most notable contrast between how the parable is dealt with in Matthew and Luke, Matthew leaves the question open as to whether or not the lost sheep uh, will be found at all. And if he finds it, says Matthew, this is more than a subtle difference in language or transcription. Um, The difference is, is stark, and we should conclude as readers that Matthew is doing something very different with the parable um, than, than is Luke, or at, at least that Jesus tells this parable with slight but meaningful differences to make different, offer different insights and make different points and provoke different audiences in various ways. And I think probably all of that is at work. But um, in Matthew particularly, we have in front of us a warning parable. And so for those of you who listen, um, I mean, if you listen to podcasts in the way that I do, I'm really almost never in a position to take notes while listening to a podcast. But for those of you who do um, keep track in that way, I know some in our community are keeping track in, in that way, or maybe you're, you know, you're using this and listening real time in your center communities. I know that we have a couple of communities that are doing that. Um, this is something worth writing down. This is a warning parable And the warning is clear. We are responsible for the restoration of one another. We are responsible for the restoration of one another. And that that theme, that thread runs through um, our analysis of the parable today. And I think it is uh, well supported by how it's used in Matthew. So let's take a look then at Matthew chapter 18. Here we are beginning at verse 6. And whosoever causes one of these little ones who have faith in me to falter, it is better for him to have a millstone of the kind turned by a donkey hung about his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Alas for the cosmos because of the occasions of faltering, for it is a necessity that occasions of faltering come about. But alas, for the man through whom the occasion of faltering comes. Now, if your hand or your foot causes you to falter, cut it off and fling it away from you. It is good for you to enter into life crippled or limping rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the fire of the age. And if your eye causes you to falter, tear it out and fling it away from you. It is good for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into Hinnom's veil of fire. See to it that you are not contemptuous of one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that their angels in the heavens for forever look upon the face of my Father in the heavens. How does it seem to you? If there is any man to whom a hundred sheep belong, and one of them wanders off, will he not leave the ninety-nine upon the hillside and go in search of the one that is strayed? And if he happens to find it, amen. I tell you that he takes more joy over it than over the ninety-nine who have strayed. So it is not the desire that occurs to your father in the heavens that one of these little ones should perish. And and the text goes on to talk about um, our accountability to one another within a believing uh, community. This is a warning parable. And again, we are responsible for the restoration of one another. Um, and and that's, that's what we're going to unpack today. If, if you're somebody who, uh, I mean, you're listening to these, these podcasts regularly, I would just, again, try to encourage you to not uh, reduce this teaching to just kind of the exchange of information um, and, and allow it to be just merely, you know, more information in your head. This is something that at this time, um, any time, but at this time in our shared experience as, as, as a community, this is something that should be of the utmost important to, uh, importance to us. And that's not something I'm trying to, you know, I'm not trying to like really make an emotional appeal. I think that in truth, this, this matters so much right now. The idea and the actions that follow it, that we are responsible for the restoration of one another. So that's what we're going to be unpacking. And I would just ask that you, um, and I would pray that you take it seriously and, and don't treat it, you know, as, as information merely, but rather as something that may shape um, how you're interacting with, with the people that God has put into your life. So with this parable, um, Jesus is entering into at least two significant debates within Judaism. And from each of these debates, I think there is insight that we can draw for our benefit um, as we're thinking about this, this central theme about our responsibility for one another and our responsibility to help restore one another. But as, as I think that most of the, um, if you've been a part of Center for any amount of time, long before we began this series, you know that it's, Jesus was not wandering around various villages randomly addressing one issue and then another and so on. I mean, he is in the same way that, not in the same way, but um, in a similar kind of way that if, if you know somebody is running for, for an elected um, office, you know they're going to address certain issues. We know that Jesus, as a rabbi in his time, is going to address certain issues. There, he's not going to um, walk past them or or disregard them. And so certain things can be anticipated. And Jesus, in in offering this parable in the context of Matthew, anyway, is speaking into two distinct debates that preceded his ministry. Um, and that's, that's going to be useful for us as we um, frame um, the insights that, that can be gained from examining uh, the lost sheep in Matthew. And so, I'll frame the debate, and then I'll offer just one or two points. Uh, I'll, I'll frame the first debate and offer one or two points, and then I'll frame the second debate and offer, again, maybe one or two points. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude. 
the first interesting debate that Jesus enters into um, centers around this question. What attitude should be taken regarding association with those who are not Torah observant? What attitude should be taken regarding association or our association with those who are not Torah observant? And of course, the way that could be translated now, um, um, most of us are not in communities where we are dealing with people who are, I suppose we are dealing with people who are not Torah observant, but most of us are not um, encountering many practicing um, Jewish people in our in our community, but we we encounter something very similar now, and and you'll see that as we begin to unpack this this first debate. So we begin with the perspective of Matai from Arbella. This uh, this rabbi was known for his fear of sin, and uh, this is uh, um, attributed. Uh, to, to Brad Young's work, which I as I've referenced many times and, and recommend to you all. So um, Matt Hyde from Arbella um, says this on his fear of sin, keep far away from an evil neighbor. Do not associate with the wicked and do not lose hope of the final reckoning. So you have um, this, uh, this popular perspective, not only, not only held um, not only held by one rabbi, but many, which is the, the idea that, uh, and it, it, I mean, it hardly needs explanation, but the idea that um, association with the wicked is going to lead to some, uh, is going to lead to the detriment of the one who associates with the wicked. It's not, it's, it's not good to keep bad company is the idea. And um, there really is something, there's, there's some really meaningful wisdom here. Um, and anyone who who's thought seriously about this, even for a moment, understands how toxic, um, how corrupting someone who is wicked can be. And um, we can, you know, we could explore the semantics of wicked, and that's interesting. But whether it's somebody who is wicked or somebody who is um, simply um, an unhealthy influence, we all know, we all have known what it's like to be um, with someone, to be sitting down with someone who is toxic in the things that they say. They're slanderous or, or they gossip or their perspective on the world is so dark and unhelpful that, you know, you, 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 that, that one gets up after 45 minutes of coffee and, you, you, you know, you have, to, you have to do some kind of reboot to reestablish the way that you to reestablish the way that you look at the world the way that you were looking at it before you sit down with them and and you are exhausted and worn out by these people that's i think at kind of a minimum that's kind of a minimum negative effect which is to say that it it's unpleasant and sometimes requires us to recalibrate after spending time with people who are um badly misaligned who are far from what Jesus teaches us to practice in the Sermon on the Mount. So this kind of statement, keep far away from an evil neighbor, do not associate with the wicked, and do not lose hope of the final reckoning is, I think, something that we shouldn't just quickly dismiss or see it as, you know, overly pious or something like that. Um, I mean, there really is something to that. It also should be, and, and again, I know that those who are listening to this podcast, you've experienced this. You know exactly what I mean when 
Um, you've seen one person because their their behaviors or their thinking is corrupted in some way. You've seen one individual, and there might be many things that you value, love, um, like about this individual. There might be many good things about this individual, but because in one or two important ways um, they are corrupted. You've seen that thinking, those practices spread to other people within your network, within your community, within your family. And we're not talking about, you know, some kind of juvenile um, construct of this. I'm not talking about like, you know, being 13 and like dealing with peer pressure. This is, that is a, you know, that's a far cry from what I'm referring to. What I'm saying is that when you are, in close community with people, when you are abiding with them, when you are close uh, uh, relationally with them and you, you share your life with them, their practices, their ways of thinking about the world begin to become your own. I mean, similarly, I would say that, and I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but there is, there's certainly some truth to this. If you want to learn to love your career, for example, when it's good or bad, you know, when it's perfect or imperfect, surround yourself with people who think right-headedly about their careers, right? I mean, if you want to learn to make the most out of your professional life, where, whether it's where you want it to be at this moment or not, you want to have in your life people who, in the hierarchy of what matters, place their careers and their professional lives you know, in, in the right place. And you want to see how they do it and you want to model yourself after them. You want to see how they handle setbacks and you want to see how they um, humbly accept successes and you want to begin to emulate that. And what ends up happening is their views um, become more than merely a set of ideas, um, but their views become an ethical uh, framework a mode by which you experience your own life. And that is exactly, that's a very good thing. And it's, it's also a biblical thing. I mean, if you want to have a healthy marriage, there are many things that go into having a healthy marriage. There are many things that go into having, having healthy friendships or being um, grounded and, and uh, productive and, and sane parents. But at minimum, you want to surround yourself with people who not, 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 not everybody, but you want to have some people, several people in your lives who are doing the thing well. I mean, the, I, I say, as a parent, the, I've, I can't tell you the tremendous advantage I have in having people in my life that I'm very close with that are excellent, some family members, some that are not, that are excellent parents. And their approach... I don't merely mimic their approach, but the healthy features of their parenting approach, I adopt as my own. And, and again, when it comes to something like a marriage, the most full and enjoyable uh, and um, life-giving marriages I've seen are ones that um, have modeled themselves after after other couples and and are willing to ask very 
you know, very, very practical and immediate questions of, of the, of, um, of other couples in, in, in their lives. And so when you read a warning like this, keep far away from an evil neighbor, do not associate with the wicked. This is not, you know, as I think sometimes, you know, you, if if those of you have left behind a kind of particularly conservative evangelicalism where it was kind of like us and no more. And it's like, you know, you're welcoming to other people, but it's only to witness to them. And, and you don't want to, I, you know, you've, you've rejected that kind of old idea of, of, you're only allowed to be close with people that think exactly like you think. I'm not, I'm not promoting that, but, but sometimes we, we, the pendulum swings too far the other way. And if you are surrounding yourself, if you find that you're being outnumbered by people who are approaching their lives in unhealthy and dangerous ways, you need to, one does need to rethink that because, because that bleeds into your own lived experience. Debate one should be taken seriously. We should not merely throw out this first view, which is to say, keep far away from the wicked. Uh, Again, the question on debate one, what attitude should be taken regarding association with those who are not Torah observant? So we have, um, we have one view which suggests that we need to not associate at all with the wicked. Contrast that against Hillel, which models, who models an entirely different ethic. Uh, here's Hillel. Be of the disciples of Aaron. This is a, um, an exciting and, um, I think, powerful insight. Be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving humankind, and drawing them to the Torah. What a wonderful, um, what a wonderful quote that is. Be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving humankind. And I read that as essentially indiscriminately and drawing them to the, to the Torah, drawing them to the right way of, of looking at God and the world and our relationships and so on. That probably we might place a at the other end of this continuum. On the one hand, you have uh, rabbis advising to stay far away from the wicked because because these these rabbinic um, leaders know the power of the wicked to sway the thinking of uh, and lives of the righteous. On the other hand, you have someone like Hillel, which is basically open armed, love all of humankind and pursue peace with everyone, even the wicked. And certainly, I think the Hillel quote. I'm speaking. You know, my opinion on this, I think it's a more inspiring quote, but um, I don't I don't think it is. I think it's actually while, while maybe more inspiring, I think is um, incredibly challenging. So Jesus affirmed and, and Young says this, Jesus affirmed the reign of God is for everyone. In this case, uh, you might be uh, you, you're probably correct to, to see Jesus ethical sympathies closer to Hillel, closer to an open-armed approach to those who are evil, to those who are suffering from sin, to those who are perpetrating sin, to those who are wicked. Jesus tends to take a more open-armed approach to this. I don't know, and uh, I'm, and, and, and scholars could, could help flesh all of this out. I don't think it's really for this discussion. I mean, you might have the discussion, is, is Jesus 
even more liberal, even more open in his approach than Hillel. I mean, arguably, yes, in other places he is or isn't. That's that's its own kind of conversation. But Jesus has his arms wide open for everyone. Is there something to be said about looking at your close circle and asking the question, are these people pursuing the kingdom ethic in the way that I am? Because if that is not the case, you're risking your own well-being, your, your, um, your own health. And, and so I think we need to take the other side of this and take it seriously. But ultimately, when Jesus offers us the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew, he is recognizing the subtext of this debate and he is weighing in. Go with open arms. Make sure you're equipped. Think of other passages in Matthew where Jesus um, prepares and sends the 12. Make sure that you are equipped and ready, but go with open arms, seeking to bring peace and restoration to all of humankind. That's, that's clearly where his sympathies lie. And therefore, ours should be aligned to this as well. Within our culture, I think Hillel um, actually holds up much better than his counterparts. In other words, I think it's easier to affirm Hillel than a more... Um, uh, inclusive uh, approach. It, it just simply sounds better to say this or to say a quote like this or to believe it about yourself that, that, you, that you're interested in loving all humankind and drawing them to God. It just, it simply is a, it, it feels better. It sounds better. We want to think that about ourselves. However, I think there are several important implications to this um, that we should not move past um, too quickly. And we should actually, um, think through together because while it sounds good, um, the implication is that this is, this is a taxing and demanding, um, approach to our world. Remembering again, this, this, this thread, this through line, which is that we are responsible for the restoration of one another. So I have two points within this first debate, and then we'll take a look at the second debate. The first point is this, the restoration of one another will likely necessitate more conflict than appeasement. For all that Hillel says about loving peace and pursuing peace, um, to arrive at peace, to arrive at a place of loving humankind and being at peace with one another actually requires, um, I think it requires a good deal of conflict. Rabbi Simeon said that when one eats a meal without discussing Torah, it is as if they had eaten of sacrifices to dead idols. When one eats a meal, to maybe expand that a little bit, when one eats a meal without talking about the ethical imperatives brought to us by the Sermon on the Mount and all their complexity given to us in Scripture, when one eats a meal without thinking through or talking about who we are to one another in a believing community. Simeon says that we've, we've eaten a sacrifice to dead idols. That's how seriously um, we should take the opportunity to sit with one another and think through together how we need to live in the world and be in the world and where we agree and disagree. And um, some of you in the community uh, love debate. And this is like, you know, you're, you're happy to, you know, conflict is something that you welcome others of you. And I want to maybe take a moment on this. Others of you, it's not that you mind 
conflict. It's not that you mind debate or disagreement about what the Bible says or teaches or how we should live or respond to this problem or that problem as things arise in the community. And and I, I mean, I could be specific. I, I, I won't be, but you need only spend a moment thinking about, take take the last three months and think about the many issues that have been brought before you as a member of the believing community that is kind of center church and various kind of networks that orbit around it. And you know that people are looking to you for insight and clarity or, or even arguably maybe they aren't, but you know that you have useful insight and clarity to offer. We have, there is an obligation here. There is responsibility here. And, 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 and there, I know that there are members of the community who are saying something like this. I'm willing to have conflict. I just simply don't think it's terribly productive. I don't think it's, it's terribly useful. It's not necessarily that I love or hate conflict or debate. I mean, these, are, these are different different words that have, I think, different implications. But let's go with conflict for a moment. It's not necessarily that you um, must avoid conflict at all costs. It's just that you question uh, the productivity of it, the, the, the efficacy of it. And what I would suggest is that, of course, we're meant to bring nuance and thoughtfulness to the ways in which we disagree with and interact with others, of course. But some of us bring so much nuance um, and so much um, care to the ways in which we disagree or have conflict with one another that the conflict that might be useful might save somebody's relationship, might save somebody's you know, career trajectory, might help someone look at a, at a relationship in the correct way. I mean, we might, we might be so slow to bring these issues to the table that we're just letting these people go into the wind. And that is um, ultimately a shirking of our responsibilities. The restoration of one another will likely necessitate more conflict than appeasement. This ethical approach requires a degree of involvement in one another's lives with which many of us simply are not comfortable. And I include myself on that list. In fact, this is an interesting area. I think of strength within center, which also reflects, in my view, uh, perhaps another subtle weakness, which is at center, I think we, we have long been quite good at the transparency necessary for us to be with one another in a way that is open and truthful. I, I think that that's been cultivated by members of our community, by leadership within our community. And I'm just, I'm always, I'm, I learn from all of you in this way. I'm really astounded by the, um, the carefulness with which you treat one another and the willingness that you have to be open with each other. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for it. And I think it's, um, it's something I, I, I really give, I really glorify God when I think about, um, how sincerely vulnerable you are in front of each other. That's an amazing thing that is inspiring. However, um, I, think, I think we lack, I think maybe some of us anyway, lack a willingness to catalyze one another to growth, to deeper maturity and to righteous living, to have openness without shared responsibility to increased health is to miss something essential about being with one another in community. I can't tell you how grateful I am that we are, so many of us are so open with one another.
But to have that and to not know how to have conflict as it is necessary to spur one another on to health and, and maturity, to, ha to have one without the other is, I'm sorry, but it's, it's simply not enough. And if, if you're hearing this, you're like, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm living in that tension because there is definitely some tension there. If you, if this is not, if you, if you're hearing this, you're like, no, actually I, I, I receive other people's, um, concerns and lives and, and, and their openness. And I'm thoughtful and prayerful. I'm intentional about how I speak into their lives and I'm willing to have conflict when it's necessary. I can think of a very long list of people in our community. They're in, they're on my mind right now who do this so well. And this, this is not really, this is not something, something you are doing. It's not, there's no corrective for you. You're doing it. But for those of you who are hearing this, you're like, yeah, I do celebrate the openness. I also engage in this transparency. What I would tell you is thank you because it's, it's a shame. And it's, a, it's, um, it's, a, it's a shame that so many religious communities are the most closed places where people hide from one another. They hide from themselves. They feel obligated to go for all kinds of reasons but but it's it's where people are least themselves for those so for those of you who are open and transparent and it's taken you a long time to get there i mean it and um i mean it when i say thank you um because you're you're doing some of the good work of the kingdom but i would also say that if you're there and have been there and you're like i i'm there i'm doing that i received that from others and i'm living that myself i would encourage you to remember that part of the maturation, part of the deepening, uh, part of the becoming whole is, is the necessary conflict that is going to flow from us being involved in one another's lives at a level that is slightly uncomfortable or, or sometimes quite uncomfortable for many of us. And of course, it again, probably should go without saying, I don't mean that this is for everyone. You shouldn't open yourself up to you know, you know, 60 people, 70 or 80 people. Well, what any of you have to say, please weigh in, critique. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. And, and of course, we, I'm sure we know that. But for, for, the, for those who are within, within your community, right, those who are close to you, we have to be open to this kind of conflict and critique and the growth that, that comes with it. Sometimes it takes a lot. Uh, it takes significant conflict to get to peace. And nothing along the way is guaranteed. It is simply, and that, that's the, I think, the heaviness of the, the way this parable is um, organized in Matthew. It is simply a tenuous place to be in when friendships and relationships are brought to tension points. It isn't preferred by any of us. If we're honest, it, it is at times required. So, number one, the restoration of one another will likely necessitate more conflict than appeasement. Number two, the restoration of those who are lost requires a deep well of personal wisdom and Christian character. Once more, the restoration of those who are lost requires a deep well of personal wisdom and Christian character. The, the fact that Matthew in his framing of the parable or Jesus in his telling in Matthew makes um, Finding the lost sheep and, uh, uh, an uncertainty. We, we don't know if the lost sheep will necessarily be brought 
um, brought back to the fold, I think places additional burden on those who are healthy and well. It places an additional burden on, on us to be grounded and thoughtful and uh, thorough in our approach to one another. So Keller, uh, in his textbook, Center Church, we'll get around to finishing that book study, by the way, sometime, offers an essential list of what it means to really be connected to one another and of the power of community to shape who we are. Also, of the power of an ethically oriented character to shape a community. So I'm not going to read um, each of the Bible verses associated with the list that he gives, but I will reference them and I'll read a couple for you. Uh, so we'll just walk down this list. There, there are many items on this list. I think we have, what, 14 or 15 items. So I'm just going to read these um, quickly. We are to honor one another. That's Romans 12, 10. We are to accept one another. Romans 15, 7. We are to bear with one another. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And to forgive one another. Ephesians 4, 32. We're to pray for one another. And confess to one another. James chapter 5. We are to cheer and challenge one another. Hebrews 3.13. We, I think sometimes, uh, I don't know if we undervalue, but how wonderful are those people within our community who are simply cheerful. And, and bring joy to a gathering, right? We are to cheer and challenge one another. Hebrews 3.13. We are to admonish. And confront one another. That's Galatians 6, 1 through 6. We are to warn one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Can you imagine? You don't need to imagine. You are connected to people in positions where they need warning. They may be very upset with you, but you know that they're heading toward disaster. And yes, you need to think through how to offer that warning, but they need a warning. And it's an act of love and charity and compassion to do that. We're to teach one another, Colossians 3.16. To teach one another. I, and I think that warrants maybe a sentence or two, which is that, you know, outside of church, we many of us don't put ourselves in positions where we're having conversations and meals with people where we can learn from one another. So it feels awkward or strange to, to, to learn from one another. And that's not, you know, what, what does it look like to teach one another? It looks like, you know, watching a film together and, and hearing somebody unpack the thing that they just saw. It's, it's reading a book um, with someone else and hearing them think through the ideas presented there. It's talking about scripture together and thinking through its meaning and its implications. And it's allowing, there's a hum necessary humility built into that. And it's, there's a humility for the, the person hearing the teaching and there's a humility for the person offering the teaching in any given moment because anytime we put ourselves in a position of teaching one another, we're putting ourselves in a position of being corrected or misteaching and having somebody push back on that. We've organized our church to allow for that exact thing. We're to teach one another. Um, the list shifts slightly. We are to stop gossiping and slandering. 
Galatians 5.15. We're to stop being fake. Romans 12.9. And the masks that we wear, if, if your idea of being fake within a Christian community is, is merely I'm pretending to be happier than I am, I'm pretending to be healthier than I am, I'm pretending to be you know, more Christocentric in my life than I am, um, then you have um, uh, reduced what it is to be fake to kind of some old tropes, probably from your, again, from your youth or a long time ago. There's a lot of ways that we put on masks within community, and we're supposed to be thoughtful and diligent about removing them all. There's a lot of, there are many masks, many more than everything is great and I'm doing great. What posture do you take within your community? What roles do you fall into and, and, and play? We're, we're to remove those. Critically and finally, we are to share possessions, Acts chapter 4, with one another. We have to share our lives with one another, and that means we're to share food with each other from our kitchens. We're to cook together and to host one another. We can do that and do it safely. You can do it on the porch. We're to share possessions with one another. And we are, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, we are to submit to one another. Submit to one another. Oh, yes, yes, I have, yeah, I have mentorship and I listen to th- this number of close friends and they have influence over me. Do, do you understand how rare it is that you actually substitute someone else's wisdom or insight for your own when they are in conflict with one another. This almost never happens. Again, another way that we play act in front of each other, another way in which we can be fake in front of one another. No, no, I'm connected to community. I have deep and close friendships and I'm transparent with them. But if they say something I disagree with, I I simply will discard it. No, I'll think about it and wrestle with it, but I'm, I'm going to go my own way. In, and I'm, this is not all of you, but it takes tremendous humility. And it is not you being subservient to ultimately to a person, but it's, it's, it's actually through people that you're, being, you're submitting to God. When you, in humility, say, you and, and a number of you have said this, and so I take those concerns in the aggregate seriously, and even though I don't necessarily feel that way, I'm going to change my behaviors. I'm going to make different decisions. I'm going to reorient or reconsider this ethical, this ethical um, kind of posture or whatever it might be. To submit to one another is a high, high call. Notice how practical these are. And I have to, again, I hope this is appropriately um, affirming because to be honest, as I list any number of these, I, so many of you come to my mind, um, you are so... Uh, as a community, um, I'm, I'm so impressed and grateful um, for the degree to which you bear with one another. It's such an encouragement to see, to bear with one another. Even as people continue to go off the rails, go off the rails, deal with this the same thing again and again. They don't seem to listen or grow or change their thinking. You bear with them. And they bear with you. They might say the same about you as it pertains to something else. You know, confessing to one another, it's, it's an amazing gift to give to the body when you are, when you confess in front of them. Because at once you reveal how flimsy sin is and how readily we can feel whole and be whole from it. But also, 
it, it lays the groundwork for others to be transparent about the things that they've been holding on to. Confession is a form of leadership. Warning one another, teaching one another, to accept one another. That is something that our church does very well, to accept one another. See Romans chapter 15 for that, and that's a form of honor. And all of this, all of this collectively, to be praying for one another instead of talking about each other, all of this collectively is what it is to, to access the deep well of personal wisdom and Christian character that will allow you to be someone who one person, one person of deep character can reform a community. One person who's connected to the well of Christ can reform a multitude. That is the truth and it is available to you And it's built into this parable. The restoration of those who are lost requires a deep well of personal wisdom and Christian character. Are these Western values, what I just listed, these uh, 14 items or so, are they Western values? Are they American values? Real community comes with growing pains. And if you follow these, if you begin to go back and listen to this podcast again and look at the list, Go to the scriptures and read these passages and you'll find that you begin to reform the community that you're in. Even, and you're like, my, 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 my center community is really healthy and, and it can be more so. And it can be more so. Well, all of that is debate one. Debate one, the question in debate one, what attitude should be taken regarding association with those who are not Torah observant? Should we run from the wicked? Uh, protect ourselves from the wicked. Well, we should show wisdom around people that are uh, that look at the world in different ways. I mean, that's true. We can be open and still exercise wisdom and be judicious. And we have two points there. Number one, the restoration of one another will likely necessitate more conflict than appeasement. And number two, the restoration of those who are lost requires a deep well of personal wisdom and Christian character. I think that that is... Um, an appropriate place to close as we continue to look at the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Next time we will discuss debate two. And then we will move on to the parable of the lost sons. As always center, I eagerly and prayerfully look forward to the time in which we will be back together. Keep the faith. We will Come back together. I assure you, um, stay with us, endure, have patience, and try to remain open to the unique thing God is doing in this season. This season will be over before you know it. And a unique time of church growth will have expired. So be open to what God is doing in this season, even if you would like it to end. I look forward to a time we are all back together. Until then, we'll talk again next week.